you intend to get your pitch, I don't care what we tell me, and if they got it close, you could hit it over right field, center, or left. So you say it didn't make any difference. Of course, you can hit balls if you get close to that, with that bat you carry. See that log you carry up there. <laughs> I, I, we just laugh. I just laugh and I say, man, I was just lucky to hit that ball in there. It's American League statistics. 21 games, a 179 batting average. Tell the most incomplete story possible of a ball player as great as the legendary Willard Jesse Brown. His Hall of Fame plaque, however, speaks volumes about the pioneer who was one of the Negro League's greatest power hitters. As a matter of fact, if Josh Gibson nicknamed you Home Run Brown, then you probably got some power. And Willard Brown had some power. As a matter of fact, he was likely the most feared power hitter in the Negro Leagues in the 1940s. Keep in mind, Josh Gibson himself, who tagged Willard Brown with the moniker Home Run Brown, had become ill. And by the time that Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, Gibson, of course, had passed away as a result of a brain tumor. But please understand, when it comes to Willard Brown, the bigger the game, the better he was. And while he never got a real fair chance in the major leagues, and Willard Brown's story is so prolific and so very interesting, In 1947, when Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier, we know that there were four other players, all of them from the Negro Leagues, who would join Jackie that same year. Well, I guess I shouldn't say we know because in many ways it is the answer to a trivia question. Those other four most have heard about Larry Doby being that pioneering second, would break the color barrier within the Cleveland Indians, now the Cleveland Guardians. Maybe a few others may have heard me on this very show, Black Diamonds, talk about the fact that Hank Thompson and Willard Brown would also go up in 1947. They would join the St. Louis Browns. And then Dan Bankhead would join Jackie over at Brooklyn. The fundamental belief was that Willard Brown and Hank Thompson would do for the St. Louis Browns what Jackie had done for Brooklyn in terms of black fans coming out to watch them perform. It just simply did not happen. Willard Brown quickly understood that he had left a ball club in the Kansas City Monarchs that was far more superior than the St. Louis Browns. The St. Louis Browns, in many ways, was a sideshow. I guess you could say if you were a St. Louis baseball fan, you were probably watching the St. Louis Cardinals and not the St. Louis Browns. And, of course, it's been well documented, the reception that both Hank Thompson and Willard Brown received. They never really got an opportunity to get acclimated to playing for the Browns. And Willard Brown struggled with the the racism and the social challenges that was there. 
This is the voice of Willard Brown, recorded with interviewer William Marshall in 1982, courtesy of the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History, University of Kentucky Libraries. Everything a little better I was hitting with, and I got up there, I wasn't doing them, I popping it up because I had to use another stand. From my regular stand, the bat was, was too light. He didn't have his own bats when he left the Monarchs, and he was dependent upon using the bats of teammates, uh, thinking that the Browns would supply him with both bats and gloves. And uh, Willard Brown, y'all, swung a 40-ounce bat, and he was swinging a bat that was much lighter than he was accustomed to. And that threw me off, you know, from the bat I was using. I used a heavy bat, and I'm little, what the pitchers use. No, the pitcher don't want nothing here because they figure they can't hit with it. They want something light so they can handle. Well, I, I could handle the heavy bat because if you have a heavy bat, you, know, you can hit better. Babe Ruth didn't have no light one, 40 ounces. Campanella, and now I start him to hit home run, 40 ounces. You understand? I, I tell a whole lot of guys in that would hit the long ball, could hit the long ball, best thing in the world, have something with some wood in it. And when he finally gets a bat that was suitable, he had borrowed the bat of a player named Jeff Heath. Jeff Heath swung the heaviest bat on the team. And so Brown had actually found a bat that Heath had discarded. The knob had been broken and Willard kind of reassembled the bat, put some electric tape on the, on the knob to kind of helped form a knob, which the umpire ultimately made him take the tape off of the bat, said that that bat was illegal to have that knob in that fashion, remove the tape, and Willard Brown goes up with a bat that doesn't even have a knob on it, and he hits an inside-the-park home run. By the flagpole, right by the flagpole. They looked at me, that's a funny that I, like you say, why in the heck you get him from and uh, <laughs> you know, you come and paint it with I had two men on him come and paint it and that made us go out in front of him and then we beat him and uh, didn't get a chance to swing no more suit for the long time. I said, Oh shit. So Willard Brown, with a bat that had no knob on it, steps to the plate against future Hall of Famer Hal Newhouse who wound up and delivered a pitch and Brown crushed the first pitch he saw. It was a fastball shoulder high and when I swung, I knew I hit the ball hard, Brown recounted. The ball rocketed toward the flagpole in the deepest part of center field, falling just shy of clearing the fence and banging off the 426 feet uh, sign on the wall. Willie Brown said, I just ducked my head and started running. And when I came around second and, and coach Earl Combs waved me to keep on going past third, my legs seemed to sprout wings and he gets an inside the park home run. What happens next raises some serious questions because Jeff Heath would already take a bat that was damaged and destroy the bat after Brown got back to the dugout after hitting that home run. Now, the question is, was this an act 
of hatred by his teammate because it certainly contradicts some of the things that had happened. Jeff Heath had been one of the players who had been somewhat welcoming to Hank Thompson and Willard Brown. And yet his actions would defy what both Brown and Thompson had experienced with him. Now, some say that Heath was superstitious and that he thought there was only a few home runs in any bat. But again, this is a bat that he had discarded. For him, there were no more home runs in that bat. He was not going to use that bat. And yet he destroyed that bat when Willard Brown hit that inside the park home run. Going back to Willard Brown's childhood, Willard Brown was born in Shreveport, Louisiana on June 26, 1915. He was a man of simple means. His father had been a sharecropper. During that time, and uh, you couldn't make no money, and I would, didn't want to be no school teacher, and I couldn't finish school because my mother left my father and left me with my daddy. So. I love baseball, so they just, he told me, say, well, you don't want to go to school, you play ball. And coincidentally, Willard Brown would become a bat boy for the Kansas City Monarchs, who knew that he would go on to become one of the Monarchs' greatest baseball players. They came out and trained, pranking them all over and down, they kicked Play is with me, you know, when I was a bad boy. They give me a glove and a bat. They will forget it. I kept that bat. I think it's that. I, I think I got it. Now, now I don't let nobody bother. <laughs> I, I put the glove up. I think if you touch the glove, now it'll fall apart, <laughs> you know. I say, I say, I'm going to keep this in. I say, that's the team I want to play with. Willard Brown got his start with the Monroe Monarchs of the Negro Southern League. In 1937, J.L. Wilkinson would bring Brown to the Kansas City Monarchs. You see, after one season with Monroe, Brown joined the Monarchs, one of the premier franchises in the Negro Leagues. Monarchs owner James Leslie Wilkinson had spotted both Willard Brown and Buck O'Neill while Kansas City was barnstorming against the Shreveport Acme Giants in spring training. Come on, say the Monarchs want you. I said, what? I thought they just play. I thought they just pulling my leg, you know. I said, what? I said, yeah, I go. He offered me a contract. He said, I want you to play with the Monarchs. I said, me? He said, yeah, you. I said, oh, Lord, I said, yeah. yeah. And I was doing my heart was beating fast, you know. And he said, i tell you what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you $250 to sign this contract. That's more money than I've seen, man. Listen, dollar a day to eat on and, and room and bowl up. You know, that's for you. I pay for your room. Oh, man, I was in heaven. That was, couldn't tell me I said I wasn't in now, Buck would ultimately go to the Memphis Red Sox, and Wilkie would set it up that Buck would play for the Red Sox in 37, and then orchestrated to move to bring Buck from the Red Sox over to Kansas City in 1938. 
where Buck O'Neill then called Kansas City home from that day forward. Brown made the East-West All-Star Game in 1936. It was the first of eight times for him in Black Baseball's biggest showcase. Home run Brown played on a number of great Kansas City Monarch teams. And Negro League historian Jim Riley says that in five pennant winning seasons, Willard Brown compiled averages of 371, 356, 336, 337, and 365 to those pennant efforts. He was a notorious free swinger and a notorious bad ball hitter. The big, strong slugger considered anything that left the pitcher's hand a strike, and he oftentimes swung at bad pitches. It makes you wonder if he'd have been more selective at the plate, he might have been a career 400 hitter instead of compiling what was close to 350 for a lifetime batting average. He hit with power to all fields. As I mentioned, he used a 40-ounce bat, and he often hit tape-measured shots. And, and sometimes I look like I let the team down when I wasn't hitting. When I was hitting, everybody was hitting. You understand? They, they look for me to hit, because I went a minute game just with one swing. Like uh, around the ninth inning and then go. <laughs> this same polar red here, he had a big one night. Mm, we we uh, had us two to one, going to ninth inning. They got two outs. I come up, hit a home run, two two. Bob Thurman, right behind him, hit a home run, three to two. Ball game was over with, and he come out there and cried. That hated him so bad. And the people, we was in Omaha, Nebraska. We was in a new park there. The people was all on the field all around there. And boy, and all the folks went wild in there. And they just figured that the team, they was going to beat us, you know. I know it was gone when I hit it. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't worry about it. I didn't even have to look at it watch why it was going. I know when I hit it good, I said, well, well I said, well, I told him, I said, I'm going to tie it up. I said, he told me to pitch out the thing. I said, I'm going to wait on it. He's going to throw it. I know he's going to throw it one close to me or something like that. And trying to pitch away from it. I said, but I'm going to wait. He got to throw it over the plate. And I said, if he throw it over close around this plate, I said, I'm going to hit it out this ballpark. And then that was about 375 where I hit it. And I hit it halfway out in that parking lot in there. I said, because I know the ball went so far. And I just looked, I said, I didn't know why I hit it that far. You know, they used to measure the balls I hit at the ballpark. I hit them so far. They just were looking at it unbelievable. And, and I didn't believe it myself. <laughs> That's the honest God too. I really didn't believe in myself. I said, oh, y'all kidding. Y'all just trying to fool money, you know. <laughs> On at least one occasion, Willard Brown hit a home run off a pitch that arrived at home plate on one bounce. You don't have to do nothing but watch the ball. You follow the ball. If you don't hit the ball, keep your head down right on the ball. You, you see the ball coming there. You ain't worrying about how he doing it up there. You watch the ball. He jumped ship in 1940 and went over to Mexico to play. But then he came back 
1942, one of his best years, Willett Brown was hitting 429 at the All-Star break and batted clean up for the West squad in the East-West All-Star game. After the midseason classic, he continued his slugging as the Monarchs captured another pennant and met Negro National League champion the Homestead Grays in the first World Series between the Negro American League and the Negro National League. And of course, we've talked about that 1942 World Series on past episodes of Black Diners, and it was star-studded. After all, the Homestead Grays had the great Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson in the middle of what was a juggernaut offensive lineup. But as we've also talked, that 1942 Kansas City Monarchs team was incredible. The pitching staff may be one of the best pitching staffs of all time, led by the great Leroy Satchel Page. Probably anything you say he could do. Now he could uh, he say he could do it, he could do it. And God say, well, Satchel, I'm going to hit you today. That's what he said. Now he'll fill the bases up. He walked the bases loaded. Strike out the next three. Tell us, come in. And he tell us that he say, I feel good. When he said he was feeling good, he was feeling good. Now I used to tell him that when I had to go out now, I told him, I said, if anybody hit that ball out now, it's a home run because I ain't going to get it. I used to tell him that. He said, well, don't worry about it, son. Don't worry about it. The old man got his old sets. Old Satch got, got him tonight, he said. Uh, he would come in, he'd get a ticket speed, he'd pay his ticket, and he, he paid another ticket before he'd get back, because he said he'd come right back the same way. And that's, he'd do all them kind of things. You know, things, you know, unbelievable. He was for real. Yeah, he was for real. And he said, well, you got me for speeding. He said, I'm going to pay another ticket because I'm coming through that. They got so they know Satchel because we traveled so much, you know. And they know Satchel, all that Satchel in there. He's gone. Satchel blew at him. And they wave at him in there. Oh, he be driving 89. Shoot here. You add the great Buck O'Neill, Ted Strong, along with Willett Brown in that great Monarch lineup, and they shut the Homestead Grays down, won that 1942 series four games to nothing. Willett Brown only hit 412 and had a home run in that series sweep of the Grays. The next season, Brown hit 345 and made another all-star appearance before entering into military service for two years. And the interesting thing about Brown's military service, because it's oftentimes overlooked, that he was there as part of the invasion of Normandy. He, along with the great Leon Day. I went to France as when I went with the all invasion, with all the ship going, the largest thing, I was in that convoy. They learn you everything about the wall and they crawl on your stomach. I don't, I don't need to crawl, I know how to crawl. Run. I said, I know how to do that. And I said, you all going to teach me how to play baseball? And they laughed. They were scared. And I said, well, that's all I know. Yeah. I said, oh, my dad learned me how to shoot a rifle and stuff like that. And he had me on the rifle. Look at that spike rifle. 
But then they say, well, who learned you how to shoot? I said, my daddy. And they say, well, it's good, but that's what we need. That is part of the reason that here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we are working on the development of a new exhibit that will celebrate and commemorate the history of black baseball and the military. Willett Brown and Leon Day would join a Army baseball team while serving there in Normandy. A member of the Quartermaster's Corps, he was not in combat, but was engaged in hauling ammunition and guarding prisoners. He then transferred to special services. In France, former Phillies pitcher Sam Nahum got him to play for the OISE All-Stars, who represented COMZ in the 1945 ETO World Series. I play baseball for my living. I said, I ain't shooting. I said, they ain't did a thing to me over here. <laughs> she said, I'm letting that do. I said, y'all ain't do a thing. I said, and that's about the only way they kept me over there. I tell you, I said, shoot, man, I, I, I'm not going to, I said, I'm not going to fight. Listen, if, well, if I can keep myself from getting killed, and that's the only way. And I said, now, nah, I can do something for the entertainment and I play baseball to get a team and we have, you know. So they put me in special service and then I picked a team. This integrated team boasted another Negro League star and future Hall of Famer, the great Leon Day. And if you haven't heard the episode where I got a chance to sit down with Leon Day's widow, Geraldine Day, do yourself a favor and check it out because she is hilarious. And it was a great conversation about her husband, who just happened to be one of the greatest players of all time. This integrated team would go on to beat the 71st Division Red Circlers, which featured several major leaguers, including Harry Walker and Ewell the Whip Blackwell. Brown and Day both were integral parts of that military championship team. We, we didn't lose a game, though. <laughs> uh, shoot, I just say, well, there were some good days. And I said, now you can tell, you can pick some of these boys off the team when you get back state, make you some good ball players. And I say, shoot, be all right. This summer, Celebrate the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Pitch for the Future. With your donation, you can help bring Buck O'Neill's vision to life with the construction of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center, as well as the brand new Negro Leagues Baseball Museum on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA in Kansas City, where the Negro National League was founded in 1920. We're building the nation's only Negro Leagues campus, an international hub for Negro Leagues and social history. Yes, a transformative complex so that future generations will be inspired by those who dared to dream. To donate, visit nlbm.com slash pitch for the future.
So we've given you a little bit of a glimpse into Willett Brown's prolific Negro Leagues career. But there was a second aspect of his career that included playing in several Spanish-speaking countries. In 1940, Brown jumped ship from the Monarchs and went to play in Mexico. I had a chance to sit down with Arthur John Virtue, along with the great Monty Irvin, a number of years ago to talk about a wonderful book called South of the Border. Virtue described how it all came about. That year, two competing 16 leagues were formed in Mexico, creating the need for twice as many players. So the Negro Leagues were rated as never before. During the season, 63 African-American ballplayers played in Mexico, four times the number that had played in 1939. They represented about 20% of the rosters of the Negro American League and the National Negro League teams, and they were among the best players. The new league was formed by magnate Jorge Pasquale, who six years later tried to raid the major leagues. The money was more than good. Brown got $1,000 per month, and he also developed his grasp of Spanish. Yeah, $1,000 a month. And what happened? They had a earthquake. I guess it was an earthquake. Cause, uh, and I said, now nah, I can't be, I can't stay around no place with this earth shaking like this. And then we had to come to Mexico City. And we we got to Mexico City. The ballpark had cracks in it that deep, man. And they was out there putting dirt in there, and them, that dirt would keep it going. I, you, I said, you think I'm going to run out there? I said, y'all might not see me no more. You know, they laughed, and I said, no. Well, I said, I ain't going to play out here. Like that, and it, we couldn't play in two, three days. Business acquaintances of Pasquale and Nuvo Laredo formed the team that Brown joined. In 294 at-bats with the Tecalotes, the Owls, Brown hit 354 with eight homers and 61 RBIs. To underscore the type of hitter he was, he drew just 10 walks, but he only struck out 15 times. In the winter of 1941-42, with a number of other Negro Leaguers on the scene, he played second base and batted 409 with four homers and 26 RBIs. Despite that great season, he wouldn't go back to Puerto Rico for another five years. For one thing, I didn't like to be down there. It was too hot where I was. See, the reader, you have blisters on it because it's hot. That sand and stuff was down there. It was hot, man. Listen here. And you have soapy. And I said, man, listen, I'll be standing out there and I'll be trying to keep myself in there. And I say, shoot. I mean, we started to have to play at night. At that time, uh, now, most of the night game. They had to play night called day games. You, you can't all make it, but they, on Sunday, they played day game, man. And it was shooting, man. It was too hot. I told him, I said, man, I got to go. For at least one stretch in 1943-44, he played in the California Winter League for the Kansas City Royals. As always, the answer to a great trivia question, because Kansas City had a royal team before the Kansas City Royals. And the Kansas City Royals was a winter California Winter League barnstorming team managed 
by the legendary Negro leaguer Chet Brewer, who actually wanted to call them the Kansas City Monarchs. But J.L. Wilkinson refused to allow Brewer to call the team the Monarchs. He named them the Kansas City Royals. So, yes, the Kansas City Royals existed well before the Kansas City Royals came into being. In Puerto Rico, Willard Brown became a fan favorite and was nicknamed Ese Hombre, that man. And for good reason. For the older Puerto Rican baseball fan, Willard Brown was beloved as much as a future native son, the great Roberto Clemente. He won the Triple Crown in Puerto Rico twice. And during the winter of 1947-48, Brown felt that he had something to prove because he had already been dismissed from the St. Louis Browns. And he put up a monstrous triple crown season. That may have been at the time that sports writer Rafael Pont Flores coined the nickname Essay Ombre. Willard Brown hit 432, the fourth highest single season mark in Puerto Rican Winter League history. His 27 home runs remain far and away the most in one Puerto Rican Winter League season. The closest to him is another guy that you heard on Black Diamonds, Hall of Famer Reggie Jackson, who hit 20 in 1970-71 Puerto Rican Winter League season. And finally, his 86 RBIs ranked third on the single season list, the best total being his own 97 set two winters later. Now keep in mind, y'all, that the Puerto Rican Winter League schedule was just 60 games long and the caliber of competition was very high. But I, I tell you, most of the places in there, we got, we, we did, we got more respect than we did here. Yeah, country, I hear you know, that. And uh, uh, that's what I can say. I put it that way because we got more respect in them foreign countries, we did in, in our, own our own country. Yeah. And we played down there, and when they were, when we won't in their country, we couldn't do that here. Yeah. See, with the women, with all, we could go out and have nothing said. Then right. we couldn't do that here. I know. All right, but they could go out with our women, we couldn't say nothing. Now, that'll show you how it is. That'll show you how the thing was. And after becoming an almost cult-like hero, in Puerto Rico and other places around the globe that Willard Brown had played, his major league experience was the exact opposite. In July of 1947, Brown got his shot at the majors as the St. Louis Browns again signed him and Kansas City Monarch infielder Henry Thompson for a reported $5,000 a piece. See, the first time they told me I was going to the Browns, I didn't want to go to the Browns in the first place. <laughs> I, I, I didn't. I said, no. I wasn't going, but they just kept on. Why don't you go say, show them that what you can do. And I said, well, I'll keep on having it. Show them what I can do. I said, I don't mind that. But everything was different. When I got that, nobody wanted to play ball. You know, understand me? 
They, they would say this out in there and say, let's go out there and drop this game. But I had never heard that before. You know what I mean? Just to go get a paycheck or something like that. I said, oh, no. I said, we didn't play ball that way, you know. Now, that, that hurt me. I said, boy, I can't play here. I know, you know. The Associated Press reported owner Richard Merkerman of the Browns said the two players were signed to help lift the Browns out of the American League cellar. I didn't like the ball play. But see, because I, look here, I, I, I thought it was a better team in there, and I thought they had better spirit. But when I got there and, and went out and listened at them talk, when they was talking there, and they wouldn't think I was paying no attention in that. I went out and hit batting practice. I come back in, you know, chain sweatshirt, you know, like you do for the game, you know, for the team out there. They was talking. Our ball players talking and who all in that pitch. Well, we got somebody to help us in them, but we ain't going nowhere. We going out here and get this over right quick. Go drink a few cold ones. I said, well, I guess so. And I told him, hey, I said, oh boy. I say we we got it. I say we in for it just like that. The AP article added that of all the African-American players signed in the year of integration, including Jackie Robinson, outfielder Willett Brown was considered to be the prize package of the lot with only his age being something that was going to maybe hold him back. Janet Bruce, who once upon a time served on the museum's board of directors and is one of the founding members of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, wrote in her book, and as I mentioned earlier, without any time to get acclimated in the minors, Brown never really got on track in St. Louis, even though he was putting on a show in batting practice. The atmosphere was just charged with racism there in St. Louis. And I've oftentimes said that had Branch Rickey stayed in St. Louis, I don't think he would have ever been able to bring Jackie into Major League Baseball, even though we're talking about two different organizations, the St. Louis Browns and the St. Louis Cardinals. But in so many ways, St. Louis felt almost like the South. And they said, well, we need to get some people in this ballpark. And I said, that's when y'all got me in Hank. And he wanted to know why he wasn't drawing any color people. I said, you got them out there in the bleachers out in that sun. I said, they already suntanned. They don't need no more. Let them sit up in the stands right now, you know. Then you get somebody in the ballpark. So they're all, you're still talking about segregated yeah. seating. Yeah, yeah that's what it, and they couldn't sit that way. They had to sit way out that right field and brought the center field, and there's nothing but the sun out there. And you know in St. Louis it get hot. Right, even when you had you two guys on the bench. Yeah, I'm telling you, I said, now, you know, you can't be sitting out, you're gonna enjoy out there sitting out in that hot sun. We ain't enjoying no What'd they say? They started to let them come in the stands. That's what they said, and then they started talking how many people we drawing. While we was there, we draw more people, we draw three times more people, and they did. But we didn't have the team. Buck O'Neill always believed that the 
main reason that Willard Brown and Henry Thompson got released was that the Browns would owe the Monarchs additional compensation if both players stayed on the team. And so after a 21-game stint with the club, both players were unceremoniously released and would come back to the Kansas City Monarchs. Can't come out with coke, come out and tell me they pay what they give me, and they say they didn't need their money. Then I end up paying my way back to the States. Mm. Pay my own way back. Because I told them, I said, I ain't going to play no more. I said, I don't play that. I don't play that to see. But they want to play me some extra game, and then I have to pay my own room and board. And that man, Coca Cola costs a dollar. You couldn't buy nothing cheap down there. Nothing. Mm. I said, I ain't even be paying this kind of money. I said, y'all don't give me that money. Y'all want to get it back? I said, no way. Because it's in the bank. I said, that. I, I put that in the bank before I even ever come down here. Hank Thompson would go on to integrate a second major league ball club, the New York Giants. He is actually there before both Monty Irvin and Willie Mays get there. Hank Thompson was a tremendously talented ball player who had not been for his own personal demons, would have likely have had an opportunity to be a Hall of Fame caliber ball player. You may recall that Hank Thompson, Willie Mays, and Monty Irvin formed the major's first all-black outfield, even though Hank Thompson was an infielder by trade. That's just how good Hank Thompson was. Willard Brown would never get another opportunity in the major leagues. I don't know if he really wanted to go back to the major leagues, but what we do know is that the New York Yankees came back to look at Willard Brown. And our own Buck O'Neill actually recommended another ball player to the Yankees. That ball player, Elston Howard, who was far younger than an aging Willard Brown. And I believe Buck believed had a better opportunity to be successful in the major leagues. Willard Brown would eventually move on to Canada to go play and made a major impact well into a season age, I guess you could say. Willard Brown's story is tremendously fascinating and it is tremendously important. Whether he was home run Brown, whether he was S.A. Ombre, whether he was known as Sonny, because there were oftentimes players who thought that Willard Brown only wanted to play on Sundays when the crowds were at their biggest and that he would sometimes carry a Reader's Digest in his back pocket of his uniform because he would sometimes get a little bit bored with the activity that was going on. But what we do know is that Willard Brown is absolutely one of the greatest baseball players that you've likely never heard about until today. But if you go to the National Baseball Hall of Fame, into the plaque room there at the National Baseball Hall of Fame, you'll find Willard Brown's plaque hanging proudly 
exactly where he deserves to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame, having been inducted in the class of 2006. That same class that my friend Buck O'Neill got left out. But I know that Buck was absolutely delighted to see his former teammate take his rightful place in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. A very special thank you this week to the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History, University of Kentucky Libraries. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, with additional voiceovers provided by Donnie Samuels. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. SiriusXM Podcasts.